Hello. Before we jump into the show, we need to shout out our awesome new sponsor, Marquee TV. Man, I was so excited when we got the news about the sponsor. You all might remember from a few weeks ago that I talked about my new Shakespeare project where I'm learning everything I can about Macbeth. It felt like we said the name Shakespeare out loud and the marquee people appeared and said, <laughs> we gotcha. It really did. Yeah. In case you're not familiar, Marquee TV is a streaming service. They have theater, ballet, opera, documentaries. There's a bunch of behind-the-scenes content of productions. Basically, it's a fun way to nerd out about the arts. Yeah, it's a streaming service that will take you to the best theaters in the world from the comfort of your own sofa. I've already added so many things to our watch list. Did you know there's a ballet based on the works of Beatrix Potter? I did. They've got a little preview video of somebody dancing around in a somebody, rabbit costume. Peter Rabbit doing ballet. <laughs> I also added a few hip-hop dance shows just to balance out the dancing bunnies. Yeah, hip-hopra. <laughs> That's what they call it. They do. It's so fun. Yeah. Mozart's Requiem yep. from the London Philharmonic Orchestra and a bunch of Shakespeare plays, including Richard II starring my pretend best friend, David Tennant. And Judy Dench talking about her long relationship with Shakespeare in a master class. Yeah, I love Judy Dench. Sure. But David Tennant. Yeah, that's quite a battle there. Okay, there's a special deal for our listeners. Marquee TV is offering three months of their service for 99 cents. You get three months of all of this good stuff for 99 cents yeah. with the code SSOP. That cost seems absurdly low to me. Like, first, I expected it to be much higher given the quality of the content, but also 99 cents. You, you can't park next to a theater for 99 cents. Accurate. Also, if you watch Marquee TV, you get to see these shows maybe wearing your pajamas and hanging out with your cat yeah. or your dog. Yeah. It's a good way to sort of indulge your own curiosity. You can see all the performances of Hamlet or maybe the first 15 minutes of all of the performances of Hamlet and you don't have to rope your friends and family into all of that. Or you could watch Richard II over and over and over and over. <laughs> What's the best angle for David Tennant in Richard II? Trick question. All of them. <laughs> anyway, you definitely need to explore the website because there is a ton of really fun, fascinating engaging stuff on there. I went in specifically looking for Shakespeare and I found a ton of other things I wanted to watch. Yeah. You can keep up with what they're doing on social media at Marquee Arts TV. You can visit their website at marquee.tv. That's marquee.tv to get three months of their service for just 99 cents with the promo code SSOP. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And now the show. Hello, welcome to Strong Sets of Place. I'm David Humphreys. And I'm Melissa Jewelwan. In each episode, we explore one destination through the pages of five books we love. We search for books that are readable, engaging, opinionated, and tell you about the best. Fiction and non, contemporary and classic, these books help us understand the world and our place in it. We're on a trip around the globe, one great read at a time. Thanks for joining us.
Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of Strong Sense of Place. Today we're talking about Mexico. At the start of every episode, we talk about why a writer would be interested in a location. What makes Mexico compelling for writers? Before I jump into that, fun fact. Mexico is the most popular vacation spot for Americans traveling outside the United States. Because of those... Beautiful, beautiful beaches. I suspect that is probably the case. But I want to talk about the other things in Mexico. Ancient cultures, like the Mayans, the Toltecs, and the Aztecs. We also have the conquistadors. Right. Who brought Catholicism to Mexico and destroyed much of the local population. Yeah, Catholicism and lots and lots of blood. On the upside... Beautiful colonial architecture. Yes. But probably not worth the loss of life in those cultures. I feel like we kind of have a down start on Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) So let's cheer it up a little bit. We have beachy paradise. Yes. Jungles. Jungles. Deserts. Mm -hmm. Snow-topped volcanoes. A rich culture of food, family, and music. Yes. Lucha Libre and bullfighting and soccer and baseball. Yes. Magical realism and native folklore. There is an entire pantheon of Mayan gods. Who are fantastic. Yes. And we're going to explore much of that in the books we're talking about today. Let's get to it. But first, but first, let's talk about two truths and a lie. I'm going to say three statements. Mel doesn't know what these statements are. Two of them are true. One of them I made up. You ready? I'm up for the challenge. Number one, Mexico City is the largest city in North America. Okay. Okay. Two, Spanish is the official language of Mexico. I mean, that seems like a no, duh. Maybe you're (laughs) trying to trick me. Okay, what's number three? And three, Mexican artists can pay taxes with their artwork. I really feel like you're trying to trick me because the last one sounds too outrageous to be true, but the first two... Sound too true to be false. You are sneaky. (laughs) I'm going to say that... Read me number two again. Spanish is the official language of Mexico. I mean, how can that not be true? I'm going to say that's not true. I'm going to say number two is not true. Number two is not true. Hooray! That is correct. I finally got one right. Mexico actually has 68 official languages. Huh. Which seems great for inclusion and all, but probably a problem when you're dealing with contract law, for instance. (laughs) And forms. Yeah. Hello, DMV. How does that even work? Mexico has more Spanish speakers than any other country in the world, including Spain. Oh, but it's not the official language. No, it's one of 68. Okay, so that means Mexico City is the largest city in North America. Yes, depending on how you count it, there's either... 8.912 8.912 million or 21.3 million in Greater Mexico City. Wow. And it has it also has the most cabs of any city in the world. There are at least 10,000 cabs in Mexico City. There are so many superlatives in Mexico so far. <laughs> there are. And finally, it is true that Mexican artists can pay taxes with their artwork. That sounds magical. There's a program called, I'm not going to butcher the Spanish, but it's payment in kind. It's a payment in kind program, and it's the only type of its kind in the world. That seems very supportive of art, and I really like that. Yeah. There's only about 700 artists that take advantage of it, so I wonder if you have to 
apply or there be, must be some kind of process you can't just be level. like today i'm an artist okay. here's here's, here's eight thousand pictures my of drawing, bart simpson yeah. my drawing of my house which is a square with a triangle on top <laughs> my that is really cool though are paid in full isn't that great yeah that's really nice yeah all right so that makes me think of there's a museum here in prague called the docks and it's a contemporary art museum and on the wall outside it says Wash your dirty money with my art. Yeah. Which I, I really I love, love that. that. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> Paying taxes with art makes me think of that. Yeah. So let's start talking about the books. We've got five books that we think, that we love, that we think you will love. The first one is Mel's. Mel, what is your first book? My pick is Caramello by Sandra Cisneros. This is a big, sweeping family saga. Multi-generational Lots of big emotions. Okay. Lots of boisterous family members. Big feels. Yes. Mm -hmm. I love it. Our heroine is Lala Reyes, and she is also the narrator. And the book opens with a family road trip that the family takes every summer. And it's mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, cousins, Lala's six older brothers. So a small traveling army. Yes. They pack up three cars. And they drive in a convoy from Chicago to Mexico City to see their grandparents. That sounds like an introvert nightmare. Every summer. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there are really funny scenes from this road trip where they're, for example, driving down the highway next to each other, yelling at each other between the cars. So they're on their way to visit their grandparents and they stay there for the entire summer in Mexico City. And the grandparents significantly are always referred to as little grandfather and awful grandmother. (laughs) I had an awful grandmother. I can relate to that. I feel like everybody might have one person in their family where they could put awful in front of the name. (laughs) (laughs) And it would be true. And it would be true. Yeah. So as the story unfolds, we learn the history of the adults in the family and all of their complicated relationships. I want to rewind for just a second. Mm -hmm. So they're wintering in Chicago and summering in Mexico City. That is correct. This seems ill thought through. (laughs) Well, the kids are out of school in the summer. Yeah. Okay. So the story unfolds. Yeah. So we're getting the backstory on all of the adults. And significantly, we're learning how grandmother became the awful grandmother. Mm. And what that meant for her and the rest of the family. Yeah. So when you first read it, it's kind of funny. Right. But of course... There's a painful truth under there. Sure. And so throughout the story, you grow to have, I don't know if it's so much compassion for the grandmother, because she really is awful, yeah. but an understanding. Yes. You understand how she became this person, and you see how it's influenced the whole family and how a very powerful matriarch can kind of trickle down into everyone in the family. That's a huge empathy trick, rising above, you're awful, but I understand. And they love her. Yeah. Because of course they do. Yes. Okay, so this is a very boisterous family. They're loud. They tease each other. As we've seen, they have nicknames for each other. And Layla is an introvert. Oh, so it really is an introvert nightmare. It really is literally her nightmare and her life. Yeah. (laughs) So she does two things. She retreats a little bit. And she becomes a really astute observer of the things around her. And that works to our credit. Her descriptions of the locations in this book are very vivid, and we have three primary locations, Mexico City, Chicago, and San Antonio. And she brings everything in those cities to life, the buildings, the people, 
there's lavish description of all of the vendors lining the streets with food and tchotchkes in Mexico City that just puts you right there. There's really loving attention paid to the food, which makes perfect sense because food is such an important part of the culture. Love a book with good food. Yeah, me too. There's corn on the cob and candy and chocolates and the smells and the sounds and the experience of biting into a taco. There's also a touch of magical realism to the story. And some of the characters have, mm, let's call it a loose relationship with the truth. Okay. They're not necessarily outright lying. But early in the book, Layla explains that her family has a tradition of healthy lies. Okay. Which are things they say to avoid trouble. <laughs> so we're never really sure how much a story is being exaggerated. And she's never really sure what if what she's being told is the actual truth. Right. So she's a dependable narrator, but what she's getting may or may not be what happened. Right. And it also, after a while, it kind of raises the question, does it really matter what the, is there actual truth? Right. Does it matter what the actual truth of the facts is? Because the impact they have on people is really what matters. Yeah. And what motivates people is really what matters. Yeah. And after a while, the stories that we tell ourselves become the truth. They are the truth. The other thing that gives this book a very strong sense of place is that the author drops in references to real people and places in Mexico City, which is really fun. This is another book that's fun to close read. Just kind of keep a browser window open next to you and Google things as you read along. Mm -hmm. One that jumped out at me because she reminded me of Betty Page was the actress Yolanda Montez. She was very sexy, glamorous cabaret performer in Mexico City in the 1930s. But her stage name and the name that most people know her by is Tungalele. Tongolele. Tongolele. <laughs> yeah. There's descriptions of the cafe where she hangs out. It's uh, it's so much fun. That name alone just sounds like dancing. I know. Tongolele. <laughs> um, I'll put links in the show notes so you can see picture and oh, video of picture her. Of Tongolele. There's a video of Tongolele performing in a movie. Oh, that's what we want. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm just going to say leopard print. And leave it there. Yes. So who would you recommend this book to? I went on a big emotional journey with this family. So if you like a book that kind of tugs at your heartstrings, and if you have a family that you love very, very much, but also drives you crazy, this book is for you. Uh -huh. and that is Caramello by Sandra Cisneros. Dave, what's book number two? Book number two is The True History of Chocolate by Sophie and Michael Coe. You said chocolate and I sat up a little straighter. I know. Me too. I was doing research for books on Mexico and this came up and I was like, yes, everything now. This book is a nonfiction history of chocolate. So like a biography of chocolate? <laughs> yes. A biography of chocolate. Where did you start? Where are you from? What's happened to you since? What are your influences? What are you... your dreams for the future? <laughs> My you... dream is to go into Melissa Juan's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So turns out we have the pre-Columbian Mesoamerican people to thank for chocolate. Thank you, Mexico and Central America. You have provided so much joy in my life. Gracias. Yes. The book takes you from chocolate's beginnings, which are about 3,000 years ago, through the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Spanish invasion. You find out a bunch of cool things like uh, the fact that pirates had chocolate. 
Of course they did. They had all the good stuff. Parrots, swords, and chocolate. chocolate. Yeah, they had hot chocolate. They had all the good stuff. There's chocolate pirates. We learned that when uh, chocolate got back to Europe, Italians experimented with it in pastas and meat dishes and macaroni. I felt completely vindicated by this because of my suggestion that we put chocolate in the chili a long time ago. Turns out the Italians were with me on that one. We hear that uh, Catholics argued about whether or not you can eat liquid chocolate during Lent, which I think is a fascinating philosophical problem. So whether you can eat liquid chocolate during Lent, but solid chocolate was okay? Well, so solid chocolate actually wasn't a thing when they were okay. having this, this right. question. The question was if liquid chocolate was too much like food. Okay. <laughs> We hear about the rise of industrial chocolate and the beginning of modern chocolate. The chocolates that we know that are salad-eating chocolates was relatively late to the game. Uh, 1700s, I think. Uh, we hear about Milton Hershey, America's chocolate baron, and his chocolate town. I grew up about 45 minutes from Hershey. We've been to Hershey, Pennsylvania. I've been on the roller coaster at Hershey Park many times, mm -hmm. as well as in Chocolate World, which is a... Very undangerous, unthrilling ride where you sit in a cart and they take you through the life of a chocolate bar. Yes, which I found less interesting than this book. <laughs> <laughs> but that's me. But does the book smell like chocolate? Mm. Aha. <laughs> I can make the book smell like chocolate. <laughs> we find out about how to make chocolate. And it was, I found that so enticing that I was like, can I do this as a hobby? And follow-up question, how many friends would I have if I figured out how to make chocolate as a hobby? And I have to admit that when you told me that, that you were thinking, oh, chocolate might be a fun hobby, for about 20 seconds, I was really mad because I can't get you to make dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was like, that's fair. Mm, I mean, I guess if his hobby became making chocolate, that would be okay. <laughs> I would benefit from that. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do it. Uh, Darn it, Dave. Yep. If you're thinking about reading this book, I would, I don't know, caution seems like a harsh word, but word of warning? Heads up. Heads up, maybe? It reads a little scholarly. So elaborate on that. What do you mean by scholarly? Like, is it dry? Is it mm, fact-laden? It's written by two professors, mm -hmm. and they are deeply in love with chocolate, and they really want you to know about chocolate but it's chocolate school. You're definitely getting the sense that it, this is a half step from a lecture. So it's a good book for people who like to know the inside workings of things. Yes. Kind of similar to the restaurant book that you talked about in episode two. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, you should also know this book has a heartwarming backstory. I am always on board for a heartwarming backstory. So one of the writers, Sophie Coe, she's a, an anthropologist and she's a food historian she has a PhD from Harvard. She's been working on food history her entire life. She published a book called America's First Cuisines, which talked about food before Columbus in America. And she just finished that and she gets and she decides she wants to work on the history of chocolate. And she starts working on that and she's in Rome and she's looking through 400-year-old books about that have chocolate history and details in them, which was exciting to me. Um, but she doesn't feel right. And she goes to a doctor and she finds out she has cancer and she only has a few months to live. I hope this story is going somewhere a little bit happier soon. <laughs> yeah. So her husband, 
Michael Coe is a professor of anthropology at Yale, and he tells her he'll finish the book, but she has to remain the senior author since the book would be almost completely based on her research. And then she died, but he finished the book because he loved her. That is a really beautiful story. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I also want to say that I raise a cup of hot chocolate to these two because they took their combined research experience and applied it to chocolate. Yeah. Also, they're a super cute couple. There's a picture of them. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes, but they're really, really cute. He wrote in the introduction, and I just found this lovely, so I'm going to read it. He wrote in the introduction, Finally, lest it be thought that it was some kind of burden or sacrifice for me to finish Sophie's book, I want to state here that it was a true pleasure. And then he says, I've learned much from Sophie, even posthumously while writing this history. And although I could never hope to duplicate the wry and ironic humor that enlivens her previous book, I hope that something ever wit and scholarship can be found in this one. Isn't that nice? That is really beautiful. He seems like a lovely man. Yeah. So if you're interested in hearing about the early history of Mesoamerica or the long voyage of chocolate from crazy little tree to your neighborhood gas station, and you're not afraid to get schooled by two sweet, sweet professors, I highly recommend The True History of Chocolate by Sophie and Michael Coe. That brings us to the next book. What's your next book? My book also has chocolate in the title. Excellent. It is Like Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquivel. Mm, that's a good one. I know that this is a classic and that potentially a lot of our listeners have read this book already, but this is my plug to read it again. And if you've never read it, I hope this will inspire you to pick it up because it is really magical from beginning to end. This is another family saga, but the tone is completely different than Carmelo. This is straight up, uncut, 100% pure magical realism. So let's stop for a second and talk about magical realism. Yeah, let's unpack that Yeah, what bit. does that mean? So I, to me... I always think of magical realism as a story that's set in our world, but has magical elements. And then I thought to myself, what do the experts say? <laughs> 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 so magical realism is a subset of fantasy. Yep. So all magical realism is fantasy. Yes. Mm -hmm. And here's what some experts say. I'm going to leave this to our listeners to decide if they agree, because I feel like you can debate it. But this is the definition that I've been working with as I've been reading books for this podcast. Okay. In fantasy, you have a world created in its entirety from an imagination. So something like Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. Wizard it, of Diversity. Yes. Stuff like that. It has its own set of rules for how the world works and it's created whole cloth from imagination. Magical realism is set in our world but magical things happen. Okay. And then what some people in literature say, they take it a step further and say, when those magical things happen, the people that they're happening to don't think they're unusual. Oh. Something magical happening is just part of the world. It's not that strange. Okay. So I wake up in my bed and there's a magical toad at the end of my bed. There's a toad at the end of my bed and the toad starts explaining to me what my day is going to be like. And you're like, thanks, Toad, for telling me what's up today. Yeah. Just you're not rolling like, with it. Holy crap. Holy cow. <laughs> there's a talking Toad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Good? Yep. We have a shared definition. We do. <laughs> Listeners, feel free to leave comments on show notes and let us know what you think of our definition. <laughs> yep. Okay. So. Back to the book. Back to the book. This book weaves together food and family in a way that makes perfect sense. But there are over-the-top magical things happening that are simultaneously beautiful and sad and kind of wacky. Okay. I'm going to get to some examples in a minute. All right. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the setting. Okay. It's set in a Mexican border town around 1900. So that's the time of the Mexican Revolution. So we have a family story, which is very intimate and small scale, playing out against the backdrop of the larger Mexican Revolution. And at the heart of the story is a forbidden love. A young girl and boy are desperately in love with each other, like fireworks from the first second they see each other. Actual fireworks? Magical fireworks? I don't think there were actual fireworks. <laughs> okay. I'm scanning my mind now to remember <laughs> if that was one of the magical things that happened. I don't think so. I think they were metaphorical fireworks. Okay. But this is like the only place. <laughs> <laughs> As the youngest daughter, it is Tita's responsibility to take care of her mother until her mother's death. And her mother is completely overbearing. So Tita is in love with a boy, but Tita's problem is that she has to take care of her mom. Forever. Forever. Yes. Okay. So even though it's doomed, the two of them are completely nuts about each other. Yes. I want to read you a quote from the book. Okay. So you can understand the fire that burns between these two. Okay. When Tita felt Pedro's gaze on her, she understood exactly how raw dough must feel when it comes into contact with boiling oil. Whoa. Boom. Yeah. So, Pedro, realizing that he can't marry Tita, who he loves, does the only reasonable thing. <laughs> he decides to marry her older sister. Sure. So he can be close to Tita. That is, yes, that's the only possible thing you can Let's do in that scenario. Let's just pause for a minute and meditate on that terrible, terrible decision. <laughs> that's a really bad decision. Bless his little heart. Because now he's sort of ruined at least three people's lives. That goes about as well as you would expect. There are ramifications all over the place. Sure. And the rest of the book is pretty much the story of how that decision impacts everyone around them because they're just like concentric circles of impact in their family, in the village, their friends. This touches everyone. Right. But that's some compelling reading because you want to know how that works oh. out. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, thank you, Pedro, for making a really terrible decision. Because <laughs> what's bad for you is great for us. Yeah. Let's talk about the magic. Okay. Tita spends almost all of her time in the kitchen. She is the best cook anywhere. And the food that she makes becomes infused with her emotions. Whoa. This has some ramifications. I would imagine so. For example, she makes this savory sauce from rose petals. And it smells wonderful and it tastes delicious. And it makes everyone who eats it go crazy with passion. Really? So they're like literally sitting around the dining table, like squirming in their chairs, sweating. Her sister gets up and runs out and like bursts into flames. And she goes into the outdoor shower and the water evaporates off of her skin. She is on fire with passion. Wow. Because Tita's burning love. For Pedro went into the dinner. Later, 
when she cries into wedding cake batter, the people who eat the cake feel a devastating sense of longing and sorrow. It's a really like fascinating way to talk about how someone's emotions, even when you're trying to cap them and push them down, are still going to affect everyone around you in a certain kind of way. They're going to come out whether you want them to or not. Yes. The descriptions are absolutely beautiful. And once you get used to the magical realism and stop being like, wait, how would that work? (laughs) 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 And just kind of give yourself over to it. Right. It's really beautiful and completely captivating. Like, I kind of want to live in this world for a little while. Yeah. I want to eat the wedding cake and see what that feels like. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. As a reader, I was completely invested in every member of the family. And the mother character, whoo boy, she is tough. These are really tremendously conceived characters. Each chapter begins with a recipe. Some are very realistic. You could make them. You could take that list of ingredients and make the thing. And some of them are more fantastical. But what makes them really effective is that the recipes relate directly to the action and the emotion in the story. I've never read anything like it. It is really moving and really effective. The story itself is wistful and dramatic. It's sometimes very funny, and it's always really magical. Like Water for Chocolate is the name of the book. It is. What's up with the title? That phrase, like water for chocolate, is a Spanish idiom that means that your emotions are on the verge of boiling over. Oh, so it's like the, it's the hot chocolate that we were talking about. It's your boiling water to make hot chocolate. Yes, and your emotions are just about to froth up. Right. And the emotions in this book are frothy all the time. <laughs> Last March, it was announced that this story is being developed into a TV miniseries. I checked recently to see if there have been any updates on that. There have not, but everyone keep your eyes open for that. Okay. If you like food and love and a dash of magic in your everyday life, you will love this book. It's Like Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquivel. All right, Dave, that was a delicious book. Yes. Yes, it was. What do you got? My next book is called I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. And it's by Erica L. Sanchez. And I have to say it had me at the title. I am not your perfect Mexican daughter. It's like, I've never been there, but I've been in that neighborhood. I know what they're talking about. That's like, it's a fantastic title. I think we can all relate to the feeling that we are perhaps not the child we were supposed to be. (laughs) It's a young adult book. The story is told in first person by Julia, who's 15 years old, and she lives in Chicago with her parents who are Mexican immigrants. On just like page one, chapter one, her sister has just died in a bus accident and the book opens at the sister's wake. Phew. Yeah. And it's presented like a 15-year-old would be there. It's just kind of almost flip, almost, but there's also the darkness that's kind of there. The dead sister, Olga, was the perfect Mexican daughter. She did everything right. She was the golden child. She was doted on by her mother who loved her. And Julia, the main character, thinks it's her fault that her sister is dead. So if Olga is the golden child and Julia knows her mother loved her, where does Julia fit into this story? Julia is a little like Jan Brady. She's sort of sidelined and her mother loved Olga and Olga's dead and Julia feels guilty about it. 
And Julia suspects her mom thinks she had something to do with it because they were together when Olga died. Oh, Julia was with her when she died? Yeah. 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 This is a really great coming-of-age story with strong plunges into Mexican culture, both in the States and in Mexico. It's been a long time since I was 15, but it felt so emotionally accurate to me. I was reading reviews and there were some complaints about Julia being sarcastic and arrogant and volatile and sometimes downright nasty. And I was like, that's exactly my memory of it. I mean, that is being a teenager. Yeah. You're trying to figure stuff out. You're kind of lashing out at other people. Yes. You're, I mean, I suspect, too, if you lost a sibling that early, you would be angry at the world. She is. And, and you don't have the tools to really express that no. appropriately. Adults don't have the tools to express that appropriately. Yeah. Exactly. And in the book, Julia goes through her shock and grief and depression, and she's trying to get a handle on boys and who her friends are and the relationships and what her own culture is like and where her family's from and just all of this stuff. And it's handled so well. She's struggling to prove who she's not because I'm not your perfect Mexican Mm -hmm. daughter, but then she ends up going around the back way to figure out who she is. There are some family secrets that Julia runs into. Family secrets in novels are my favorite thing. Yeah. And secrets in real life are my least favorite thing. (laughs) So some of the secrets are heartbreaking. Some of the secrets are illuminating. And she finds her way through all that stuff. This book is such a great exploration of that age and what it's like to want so much when you have just so little. This sounds a little bit heartbreaking. But also, like, I want to go read it immediately. Yeah, that's right. I would agree with that. While you were describing this book, it was reminding me of a book that I read set in Mexico that I really loved, but I'm not talking about on the podcast. And it's called Sea Monsters. And it is also about a teenager who is struggling to understand her identity. And she manages it in a completely different way. So there'll be a write-up on our blog all right. Both of those books will be on our Both website. Both of those books are great. Uh, the one I read was I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter by Erica L. Sanchez. Okay, that brings us to our last book. Mel, what's our last book? This pick is completely different than everything else we've talked about today. It is a straight-up beach read set in Tulum, Mexico. It's called Girls Night Out, and it's by Liz Fenton and Lisa Steinke. This is not the kind of thing I would usually pick because the characters are really not very nice and they make really bad decisions. And usually I get frustrated with those kinds of characters. But this is such a page turner. I had to know what was going to happen. So is it like Gone Girl? It's not quite as dark and twisted and creepy as Gone Girl, but it's definitely on that spectrum Okay, where you've got people who you're more curious about than maybe emotionally invested in. Yeah. You're just like, what are you doing? Don't want them in your lives. (laughs) No, but it's kind of fun to read about the train wrecks that happen. Yeah. So what I'm about to tell you is not a spoiler. It happens in the first three pages of the book. Okay. A woman wakes up on the beach in Tulum. She's just a few yards from her hotel room and she has a banger of a hangover and she can't remember anything from the night before. Okay. The night before was a painfully desperate drunken girls' night out with her two lifelong friends. Okay. They are not having a good time. They are chasing a good time. Oh. And they are doing it with copious amounts of alcohol. Okay. Okay. So she gets up, she staggers to her hotel room, 
And when she gets there, she realizes that her roommate, Ashley, is missing. And not just down at the buffet. No. Just gone, gone. Gone, gone. Okay. And now we are off to the races. Yeah. So to understand the why and the how of her disappearance, we have to get to know these three women. Okay. And they are awful. Oh. Bless their hearts. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The tension is ratcheted up because of the way the authors have structured this book. It moves backward and forward in time and just circles around the big night out. So we get flashbacks to the beginning of their trip and to the beginning of their friendship and slowly learn about how they came to be friends and how they ended up in this bad situation. Mm. They have been keeping big secrets from each other. Oh, And these secrets are behind Ashley's disappearance. So they might not be as good friends as they originally thought. You've hit the nail on the head, Dave. (laughs) It wasn't hard to get there. (laughs) So if this was only a suspense thriller, we would not be talking about it on this show. But it's set in Tulum, Mexico. And the authors have done a brilliant job of capturing the vibe of Tulum. For people who haven't been there... There are a lot of dichotomies in Tulum. It's a really beautiful place. The beach is pristine. The water is crystal blue. There are Mayan ruins on this cliff overlooking the ocean. So you can tour the ruins and then go down these kind of terrifying rickety wooden stairs to the most perfect beach I've ever been on. You and I were lucky enough to go to Tulum, and when I got down to the beach, I turned around and looked at the Mayan ruins, and I was like, this beach is why those ruins are here. They got here, and they looked at that beach, and they were like, yes, let's do it. We're here. And they were absolutely right. It is a fantastic spot. And when you're in the water, you can look at the cliffs and see iguanas running around. Yeah. It's just fantastic. But... Tulum also has a kind of hippie side where there's a lot of crystal gazing and burning incense and lots of yoga retreats. Yeah. Because I think there's a real, because of the Maya connection, Yeah, there's, it's a spiritual center as well. Yes. And then there's another aspect, which is margaritas yeah. all day long. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of a... Uh, a bit like Vegas at an archaeology dig. <laughs> it's, it's true. kind of, you're not <laughs> sure true. which one you should be paying more attention to. Yeah. So I feel like the novel really delivers on that and finds a way to weave those parts of the Tulum culture into the story in a way that moves the plot. Right. So it's really fun. This is a very tense novel about let's say mildly terrible people. They're not murderers, (laughs) but they're not always making the best decisions. It's a little like eating tortilla chips and salsa. The book. Yeah. It's like, maybe I should stop because it's too much, but oh, it's so good. I don't want to (laughs) stop. Okay. It's like that. Yeah. So if you're headed to Mexico to lie on the beach, or maybe you just want a mental beach vacation. I'm always down for a mental beach vacation. This book is for you. All right. Fun fact. This book was written by two women who I've mentioned, Liz Fenton and Lisa Steinke. They've written six books together, and they've been friends for 30 years. In the acknowledgments of this book, they shared a little bit about the challenges of writing this one. 
And all I could think when I was reading it was, <laughs> I hope they were not as mean to each other as the characters in this book. <laughs> what if they're like in a hotel room thinking about horrible things they could do to each other? And, and then, then they turned it into a novel? Yeah. <laughs> I am so sick of her crap. <laughs> anyway, that is Girls' Night Out by Liz Fenton and Lisa Steinke. Okay, those are five books we love set in Mexico. Visit our show notes at strongsenseofplace.com for links and details. Mel, can you tell us about this blog post you wrote for this episode? I had a lot of fun creating the content for this week. First off, in honor of the true history of chocolate we have a recipe for Mexican hot chocolate plus variations for other hot chocolates around the world. Mm. We also have six novels that celebrate the culture and beaches of Mexico because I read a lot of great novels to pick out the three that I talked about today. I could easily have swapped others into this episode. Okay. And there's a recipe for mole meatballs that was inspired by like water for chocolate. Guaranteed to set everybody at your table on fire. Send photos. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Strong Sense of Place. For more on Mexico, including the books we discussed today, additional book recommendations, information about our guest and literary landmarks in Mexico, visit our webpage at strongsenseofplace.com. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter. It's packed with our favorite book and travel-related things. And please follow us on Instagram, where we are at Strong Sense Of, for photos, illustrations, short book reviews, and more bookish fun. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate it, review it, and definitely tell a friend. And don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Mel, where are we going on our next episode? We're breaking out our tartan plaid and a dram of whiskey in Scotland. Thanks so much for listening. 